Hi, my name's Nick, and thanks for downloading this 3CR podcast. The following is an episode of the show in Psychedelia. If you want more information on the show, head along to the 3CR program pages and click to Encyclopedia. You can also find our website, encyclopedia.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, I'm Nick Wallace and this is in Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR.org.au and on digital as well. Uh, this is gonna, this is a show about, um, a, a wide variety of, uh, uh, topics revolving around drugs. It is, uh, we're gonna be covering the intersection of, um, the, the psychoactive worlds and society pretty broadly. On the show today, we'll be, uh, speaking with uh, some people from Harm Reduction Victoria. We'll be speaking to author Andrew McMillan, uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, uh, and we're also speaking to uh, Greg Kasarik, who will be uh, talking to us about some interesting uh, developments that he's had. Um, right now, I've got uh, Ash in the studio. Ash, uh, welcome. Uh, g'day. And we're gonna, um, you've got a bit of news for us for the week. Yeah, just a bit of a wrap of some of the news making the media in Australia and around the world this week. The, uh, the big news in Victoria were the, the prison riots. Uh, the Bellew government uh, initiated a plan to ban smoking in all Victorian prisons mm. uh, a couple of years ago, and that was due to be implemented on the 1st of July. On uh, the, the day before that, the Corrections Commissioner Jan Shuard was on 774 Melbourne ABC Radio, uh, and she's been quoted as saying that they were very, very ready to implement the plan. Uh, it was actually... Possibly one of the quickest failures of a prohibition policy. Within three hours, there were massive riots at the Melbourne Remand Centre, and there's now going to be an independent investigation headed by the former Victorian Deputy Commissioner, Kieran Walsh. Mm. Ken, Ken Walsh. Ken Walsh? Kieran. No, Kieran. it's Kieran. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> also in the media this week, we're a football-loving nation, and the Gold Coast Suns have been in the media again with Harley Bennell, uh, some photos turning up and being published by News Corp of them allegedly uh, with some lines of speed. This is following up after um, former uh, player Carmichael Hunt has implicated 12 players in illicit drug use in a statement to the Queensland Crime and Corruption Commission. Um, it's basically a story about some football players, you know, partying on the weekend. Yeah. Yes, but, there's uh, been a lot of those lately. <laughs> yeah, they tend to like it when they turn up and it's celebrities involved. Yes. Uh, also, in national news this week, the ICE task force has finished their uh, eight-week consultation period. Right, yep. Uh, that's with uh, Ken Lay, the former Victorian police commissioner, heading that up. There was some initial criticism about appointing a police there. A lot of people in the harm reduction advocacy fields thought that maybe a health professional should have been involved. But it seems like he's taken that criticism on board. He's very much acknowledging that uh, there is no silver bullet. And from what he's seen over the last eight weeks, it's a very complex problem that has not just one solution, but many solutions. So he seems to have heard the message that what the sector is screaming for is more resources, more mm. beds, and 
you know, Absolutely. more money well, the vast, the treatment sector. The vast majority of, um, of the uh, drug budget goes toward uh, policing with, uh, I think it's only about 2% going towards harm reduction um, initiatives and then 8, 8% or something for... Uh, uh, for for treatment, but yeah. most of it is in policing. So that task force is due to report back to the government later this year, so hopefully they'll take their uh, submissions on board and come up with something good. Uh, around the world, just quickly, uh, the New York Times this week published that uh, President Obama is widely expected to use his clemency powers more broadly mm-hmm. to commute the sentences of more nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, this follows on from a shift that we saw with the Attorney General Eric Holder starting to wind back some of the mandatory sentencing laws around nonviolent drug crime. Uh, so far, they've reduced the sentences for more than 9,500 inmates, but it's widely acknowledged they've got a long way to go. And if you want um, more news, we do have a uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash npsychedelia. We're also on Twitter. Uh, the spelling of that is psychedelia. If you can spell psychedelia, just put an E-N in front of that. Um, if you can't, I, I probably won't uh, just say it to you on, on radio because it will just confuzzle you. Uh, you'll you'll be able to find it. If you look up uh, on the 3CR page, 3cr.org.au, you can find uh, in Psychedelia there, and then you'll get the uh, the spelling. Um, also, because this is a show uh, about uh, drugs and we're um, uh, taking a harm reduction uh, philosophy uh, approach, which means we're not just about um, abstinence, but we do understand that people do uh, sometimes have trouble uh, trouble with substances. And if you do uh, have trouble, there is a 24-hour, um, seven-day-a-week uh, seven-day um, alcohol and other drug counselling line. Uh, the phone number is one eight hundred triple eight two three six. That's one eight hundred triple eight two three six. And if you do feel you have a problem, um, then it is worth uh, worth. Uh, speaking to somebody about it. Um, also this week, uh, the Grateful Dead, who are uh, relatively infamous for um, the acid tests at their concerts uh, in the in the 60s and 70s, are having their 50th anniversary at the moment. Um, they're doing tours around the US, raising money for uh, 16 charities, including the Multidisciplinary uh, Association of Psychedelic Studies, um, who are... Uh, the organisation um, that are behind uh, research into MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, LSD for end-of-life uh, uh, things, and a lot of other lot of other research pieces. Uh, maps.org is their website, and uh, as part of that 50th anniversary, uh, a band called Beats Antique have produced a, a cover of Grateful Dead's uh, single new Speedway Boogie. Here it is on 3CR. I'm here at uh, Harm Reduction Victoria in North Melbourne and uh, joined by uh, Jane and Nadia, both uh, employees at Harm Reduction Victoria. Um, I'll get you both to uh, introduce yourself and um, tell us about your quick bit about your, your how you came to Harm Reduction Victoria. Hi, um, um, I'm Nadia. I've been involved with the org- working at the organisation on and off for about. 11 years, but I've been involved in the organisation a lot longer since sort of the mid to late 90s. Um, I just really believed in uh, what the organisation was doing and 
And I think it's always, you know, it's good for yourself to actually give back to your community. So what was there something that uh, catalyzed you, that brought you into the organisation? Did you have an engagement with it? Or Interesting enough, a lot of my friends were working for the organisation and I'd never really sort of heard about harm reduction. And so um, and I really like the sort of projects that they, the organisation did. And um, so I just, it, it was just a, a real sense of community and it was really welcoming and it was just easy to become involved after that. And importantly, what is harm reduction for those that don't know? Okay, so harm reduction is about minimising the risks and harms associated with drug use and while people are using drugs. So... You know, they sort of can, you know, live happy, long, healthy lives and um, and do things as safely as possible. And Jane, how did you first come to Harm Reduction Victoria? Okay, I stumbled across it. It was called VivAIDS back then, um, which stood for Victorian Intravenous and AIDS Association. And um, a friend of mine was associated with the org and started working for them and so I put my hand up and became a member and then joined the board of management and sat there for a few years and then I had a short run as president which was in name also <laughs> and um, then eventually got a job here and same same as Nadia I just really liked the whole community feeling and the fact that um, you know, there are people out there that aren't saying just stop doing drugs. You can do it a lot safer than what you are, though. So that's where I come from. So in a, in a practical sense, um, you, you said harm reduction is about reducing the risks around drugs. What do you do day to day um, to help people reduce those harms? OK, so we do um, a lot of educational workshops in groups, but a lot of one-on-one -on -one stuff that, you know, they talk about peer education, you know, drug users listen to other drug users. So um, if you ask anyone how they first learnt how to do whatever drug they're doing, it was another user that, that taught them. So we interact with people doing assertive outreach or we do our workshops. Um, we also have a peer networker program. I might let Nadia talk about that because that's one of her little babies but um yeah just talking to people and saying you know this is a safer way to mix up if you're injecting your drugs have everything clean you know everyone's aware of the new fit every hit message but it's a lot more than just having a clean syringe it's everything needs to be clean Mm. You're on 3CR, this is in Psychedelia, we're at Harm Reduction Victoria speaking with uh, Jane and Nadia about what Harm Reduction Victoria does and, and just for a, uh, a bit of history, do you know where, so Harm Reduction Victoria was VivAIDS beforehand, yep. where did where did VivAIDS come from, what's, what's the origins of this organisation? Okay, so um, the origins of this organisation go back to the days when um, HIV was at our doorstep and... Um, and we had, you know, there was a real fear that, you know, that it could explode as it has in other countries. Um, interestingly, we had, um, to go right back to the beginning, we had um, a Prime Minister at the time, Bob Hawke, whose daughter was a heroin user, and we had a really good health minister at the time, and his name always eludes me. Um, but instead of having meeting after meeting, they decided to implement needle and syringe programs, but they also started to fund... Um, uh, AIDS councils and drug user organisations. Um, so 
We've been funded for about 28 years uh, by the Department of Health uh, in its all, all its former names and I know it's uh, Department of Health and Human Services at the moment. Um, so it was, it was about um, uh, drug users, uh, their supporters, their family members all getting together and sort of working towards, uh, you know, at that time it was very much around um, uh, not stopping HIV from sort of um, entering the drug using community and to this day we have around 1% of injecting drug users with HIV in Australia which is pretty phenomenal really. Yeah. And it's not just um, injecting drug users that you work with is it? No not at all, not at all and I think you know um, to remain current we've got to you know get with the times, people take drugs in all different ways and yeah very much at the beginning it was about uh, injecting and HIV, but um, you know where we embrace all forms of sort of drug use these days. Obviously, we stick with the more illicit drugs uh, because that's where we see uh, a lot more of the harms happening, and and the people who who take those drugs are more marginalised because of stigma and discrimination. So that's where we sort of like to place ourselves. But yet yeah, we we're inclusive. So what, what sorts of, um, I, I mean, you're talking to people about drugs and you're, you're essentially telling them how to use drugs, though they're already using drugs, so you're teaching them about safety, but that might rub some people up the wrong way in that it might be construed as uh, uh, encouraging or, or telling people about drug use, and I'm, I'm sure it's something you probably had to deal with before. Have you got any, uh, any stories of having to to deal with people claiming that sort of thing? Oh, look, I mean, I think it happens all the time, hey, Jane? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, research proves that harm reduction does not increase drug use. If anything, and there has... I mean, it's more anecdotal stuff, but there's actually a little bit of research saying that it actually does decrease use. I mean, look at Portugal and places like that, you know where they've decriminalised it and, and it hasn't gone through the roof, it's actually declined. Yeah. The taboo's been taken away, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it still something that you find um, is uh, a difficulty in, in doing the work, in, in getting funding, um, in, in getting on the ground and, and helping people, considering there is research to show that if you inform people, better informed people make better decisions, mm. is there still um, some difficulty with... Uh, Look, funding and talking about things? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, um, you know, just the, the nature of drug use and the fact that it's illegal, even though, you know, our federal government and our state governments, you know, their drug policy is harm minimisation, which includes all the three arms, supply reduction, demand reduction, harm reduction. But you will always... Um, it's a, it's a hard sell, you know. Um, we try to look for funding outside, um just the Department of Health um, and and it is it's a it's 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 a hard sell it really is but um, you know Jane and I can say you know where when she was talking about the assertive outreach um, you know some we have some of the best conversations with users just sort of sitting around chatting we've just met up you know it's where that sort of real sort of pure sort of harm reduction, peer education sort of happens. It, it, it's not forced, it just sort of happens in conversation. I mean, I know you want me to talk about <laughs> the difficulties. Um, we, you know, it's always good to not always be preaching to the converted. Mm. 
Um, but I guess in a way we're sort of in a bubble in the fact that we mm. just sort of focus on the job at hand. And if people don't like it, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but we know that we're helping sort of save lives. So mm, Exactly. You, it's working with a... I mean, drug users are inherently marginalised by the fact that what they do is illegal, so it's going to be uh, you know, full of potholes and difficulties along mm. the way. So what's the, what's the future for, for harm reduction in Victoria, um, considering we're seeing um, talk about an ice crisis, apparently, um, plus the uh, hardly ever spoken of um, alcohol difficulties, but obviously don't work as much with that. Um, and, and then there's all sorts of problems with all sorts of new drugs entering the market. What's, what's the future for harm reduction? Oh, the future, well, I guess bring more young drug users of all these new substances that we don't necessarily know the best about and um, get them to teach us and, and continue doing what we're doing because you can never say you know it all because yeah. we definitely don't. So you're um, uh, looking for volunteers, looking for people to become involved with Harm Reduction Victoria? We would love people to come inv become involved with Harm Reduction Victoria. I mean, first of all, just join up and become a member. That's free for individuals. And um, we have a great program called DanceWise that takes on volunteers from within the electronic dance music scene and dance parties and... Um, you know, we've got a really great team there. I think there's up to about 50 volunteers on that team at the moment, and they're just fantastic. It's full of young people, and they're so energetic and enthusiastic, and it just amazes me. I'm so proud of those. So where do people go to um, get involved with uh, Harm Reduction Victoria? If they're sitting listening, uh, they need to jot down a website or a phone number? Yep, we've got a website, we've got a Facebook page. Um, our website's www.hrvic.org.au and um, our phone number's 9329 uh, Yeah, give us a call any time. We'll provide uh, links to the website and the Facebook page on the Encyclopedia Facebook page and website after the broadcast. Uh, Jane and Nadia, thanks for uh, chatting to me on 3CR today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much. In Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM and 3cr.org.au. We're joined now by Andrew McMillan. He's the author of a, uh, of a book called Talking Smack, uh, subtitle Honest Conversations About Drugs, and uh, that's exactly what we're doing uh, today on, on the show, um, finding out that, that line between when, when, is, uh, when is it okay to talk honestly about your own drug use or somebody's own drug use and uh, when does it cross that line into apparently encouraging drugs and uh, Andrew I, I know um, you did an interview on the morning show uh, last year in promotion of your book and um, you, were, you were quite honest about your own uh, drug use um, you, how, how did that how did that interview feel and we'll play a snippet from it shortly uh, it felt good I mean I'm not really a person who is full of bravado and uh, excitement when it comes to illicit drug use. Like, to me, it's just a part of life that some people choose to engage with occasionally, and that's where it fits into my life. It's an occasional thing in the same way that people go to a bottle shop on a Friday afternoon and buy a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer. The occasional use of illicit drugs, that's it's not really a big deal to a lot of people. The, the main complicating factor, of course, is that this activity and this behaviour is illegal. So when I went on national television last year and spoke about my use of cannabis and MDMA, 
it didn't feel risque to me because I know how safe that can be when used responsibly and occasionally, but as opposed to the average person who isn't used to hearing people speak honestly about drugs, that might have been confronting to hear, and that was certainly the reaction that one of the hosts in particular had to what I said. To me, this sounds like a bit of a handbook for drug use. Mm. Is it? No, it's not advocating drug use, it's advocating the healthy You're discussion. You're talking about unlocking creativity sure. and, you know, didn't have any hits until they started taking drugs. So, I mean, that, that's a, is that a fair criticism, do you think? She was uh, inferring that by speaking honestly, I was encouraging the use of those drugs, and that's not the case. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision for someone to make, and it should be made with the right amount of research and forethought and, uh, set and setting and those um, methods in which people can and do take illicit drugs safely and responsibly. But, uh, yeah, I suppose of the 14 musicians I spoke to, there were probably more who were concerned about how speaking honestly to me and having a book published about their drug use, how that might have appeared in the wider community. So I suppose that of the people who said no when I approached them for the book, there would have been some who decided not to speak to me for, uh, as, a, as a result of their concern for not wanting to... Uh, upset or offend or arouse the suspicion of police perhaps. Mm, yeah, that, that's very true. I mean, as soon as you're uh, talking honestly about things, then you, uh, you could be admitting uh, to, to a crime um, from, from some perspectives. Uh, how The book's been out for a, what, a bit over a year now? Almost a year, yeah. And how, how's the uh, reception been of the book, especially considering what you were just saying about um, um, musicians were a little bit concerned about how it might be taken in the public arena? The reception's been great. I mean, the reason why I wrote the book is because nothing like it existed. And I've said on a few occasions that it's the kind of book that I wish I had, I had read 10 years prior as a, a 16-year-old who knew next to nothing about illicit drugs and what they were and why people used them and what their effects were. So the reaction in the community from uh, general readers and critics has been uh, generally positive. I mean, it's the kind of thing where my view is that this is 2015, we can talk about all sorts of issues, but to, to continue to push illicit drug use under the rug and to avoid discussing something which is a part of life for thousands, tens of thousands of Australians on a weekly basis, I think that's a bit nonsensical. So that's one of the reasons why I went ahead with writing about that topic. One of my... Um one of my favourite uh, chapters in the book was your uh, interview and experience with Stu Steve Kilby um, from the church, um, especially this uh, particular quote where he said, I heard that the main drives of a human being are shelter, food, the need to procreate, and the need to alter our consciousness. And I've since, um, since reading your book and the uh, chapter on Steve, um, have looked into a bit of the work that he's been doing, and he's, he's quite, the, uh, quite the psychonaut. I'm just wondering what, what it was like to, um, to, to speak with him and, and see this uh, quite uh, psychedelic gentleman, <laughs> by the sounds of it. <laughs> I mean, he is just a great interviewee, and there's a reason why he was the first chapter in the book, because I feel that was the strongest interview I did. I mean, almost everything that Steve Kilby says is quotable. So, I mean, that chapter itself could have almost been a complete transcript of what he had to say, because he was so articulate and 
he thinks through what he uh, thinks through that issue in particular a lot, having uh, come into contact with the criminal justice system in particular mm. when he was arrested for heroin possession in New York City about uh, 15 years ago. So he spoke about that in some detail. But he's the kind of guy who he, I suppose he and I are quite different in the fact, in the sense that he is uh, fairly enthusiastic about his consumption and completely open and uh, very proud, I suppose, of the fact that he smokes seven or eight joints a day and has tried every, almost every drug under the sun and has lived to tell the tale. So he's, he's a fairly avid drug user, so to be in his presence is uh, interesting, to say the least. I think one of my favourite recollections of his own um, drug use was um, him talking about uh, trying uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a, uh, uh, a drug that's found in the um, ayahuasca uh, bruise that, that brings about these incredible visions. And uh, is, it, is it something that um, made you a bit curious, hearing him talk about that? Curious, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard people speak... I've heard um, one person in particular speak about DMT a few years prior when I was still... Uh, very suspicious of illicit drug use. This was a, a guy called Sam Harris, an American author. Mm. He was speaking at the Global Atheist Convention in Melbourne in I think it was 2012, and he was taking questions from the audience, and some guy asked him about DMT, and he went on to describe, uh, although he himself, Sam Harris, had not used DMT at that time, he said that uh, people often report uh, travelling into upon using the drug, travelling into alternate dimensions and encountering these insectoid life forms. Like, there seems to be a common thread among uh, DMT users who uh, interstellar travel, as it were, and to encounter these insectoid creatures which speak to them and uh, tell them things about their life. So, yeah, I mean, to hear anyone speak intelligently and articulately about a psychedelic drug like DMT is fascinating. I mean, I think, I think anyone on Earth, if they could put aside their... Uh, preconceptions about what illicit drug use is and what it represents would be interested in what that experience might represent. It certainly holds a lot of, uh, or opens a lot of doors to a lot of uh, pretty unique questions. There was a whole book, uh, I don't know if you've read the DMT, the, the Spirit Mo Molecule, which uh, documents the process of trying to find out what's going on um, when people use this drug in, in the brain. They, they did some science on it. Have you had a, had a read of that or heard of it before? I haven't, no. I know there's a documentary with the same name as well, which I've yet to watch. It's excellent. Very, uh, very highly recommended. And I also noticed that um, Steve was actually pretty switched on, not just with um, with his uh, psychedelic personality, but also um, uh, he talked a little bit about... Um, Portugal and um, uh, their drug decriminalisation, and I know uh, you've become um, more interested in, in alternate um, uh, policies for drug law um, since then. Did, did uh, interviewing for the book sort of pu push you in that direction? You, I mean, you say that uh, earlier you were quite suspicious of drug use. So what what, mm. what changed it? Yeah, well, I mean, that came from a, more than anything else, a lack of education and a fear of the unknown. And I think those two factors are probably felt widely across Australian society because people aren't taught what illicit drugs are, what they're for, how they're used, what the effects are. And as a result of uh, media perceptions, particularly from sensationalist elements of the media and uh, politicians and police, obviously, every five minutes appearing on the news and showing the latest drug bust, like, this is widely perceived to be dangerous criminal behaviour, wherefore the average user, it's just something that fits into their life on a 
occasion. So for, for me, it was a matter of getting past those uh, barriers, I suppose, of the lack of education, educating myself and speaking with people who have successfully used illicit drugs without falling prey to the, the common uh, narrative themes of ruining their lives, which we tend to hear so often as well. So, yeah, certainly speaking with such a wide range of people across a, a couple of different generations about how drugs were framed for them when they were growing up and how drugs fit into their lives, that was educational in every sense. I think I can say fairly categorically that I've not had a bad experience with illicit drugs and that's a result of safe, responsible usage, measuring doses, using testing kits, getting planning and forethought to uh, where use takes place and who with. So, yeah, I mean, I understand at an intellectual level that uh, bad trips and so forth are uh, a possible side effect of illicit drug use or, you know, obviously, obviously overdose or death. I mean, those aren't topics to be considered lightly. But um, I think most people, myself included, can use drugs on occasion successfully and safely and responsibly and then get on with the rest of their lives as productive members of society. This is 3CR. You're listening to In Psychedelia, and we're talking with uh, Andrew McMillan. Andrew, you've ventured into the, uh, into the territory of podcasting yourself and getting your, your voice out there. Can you tell us a bit about your podcast? Yeah, last month I launched a podcast called Penmanship, which features long interviews with Australians who earn a living from working with words. So, so far I've interviewed authors like John Birmingham, Matthew Condon, and journalists like Trent Dalton and Amy Ramikis. So the interviews go for between 60 and 90 minutes, and we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of people's crafts and careers and how they go about building lives around words, which is something which has fascinated me for a very long time, and I'm uh, pleased that I myself am in that position. So the podcast is called Penmanship, and you can find it at penmanshippodcast.com. Andrew McMillan, who wrote the book Talking Smack. Um, it's available uh, across bookstores across Australia, Andrew? Yeah, I'd encourage you to visit your local independent bookstore, but uh, talkingsmack.com.au has a few links to my publisher, University of Queensland Press, for example. Excellent. Check it out, talkingsmack.com.au. Andrew, thanks for uh, joining me on Inside Daily today. Thanks for having me, Nick. You're on 3CR, and now we're uh, going to have a song from Steve Kilby, uh, teaming up with Martin Kennedy. This is Lorelei on 3CR. Steve Kilby and Martin Kennedy with Lorelei on 3CR. This is in Psychedelia. It's a show about uh, about drugs, about um, uh, harm reduction. That's the philosophy that uh, that we're going with, um, and and we're here to have honest conversations as well. Um, I've got a, a few people in the uh, in the studio now. Um, Greg uh, Greg Denham is from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Uh, Greg, welcome to the uh, program. Thanks, Nick. I've also got Greg Kasarik, who is one of the contributors on the Encyclopedia Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Encyclopedia. Greg, welcome. Good to be here. So that's a bit confusing. We have two Gregs. Yeah, look, um, um, I might... Uh, look, Gregs are just... We're just so amazing, really. That's, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Greg K. 
Greg K, Greg K and Greg D, and also Ash, um, who uh, spoke to us uh, earlier with some uh, news wrap. Now, um, I wanted to speak with you first, uh, Greg D, from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Um, many people might not have heard about Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and especially not in an Australian context. They might have heard about the American organisation, but um, not so much the Australian organisation. So uh, tell us a bit about um, where LEAP came from in Australia. Well, in Australia, it came about because um, I met quite a few police from the American group, LEAP, which started about oh, 15 years ago. And uh, that started uh, through a number of police who got together and decided that the war on drugs had failed. And uh, not only in terms of failing to do what Prohibition set out to do, that was make the community safe, um, they also recognised that it was actually... Um, making the community unsafe. And uh, I was with Victoria Police. I was a police officer for quite some time and um, I've done a lot of work with police. I've been working with police pretty much for 25 years um, off and on. And um, it started to occur to me a little while ago too that uh, things um, weren't right as far as drug prohibition was concerned. And um, I decided, well, you know, I like what these guys say. These guys in the States, they made sense and they talked about things that I also recognised and I kind of put my hand up and said, yeah, I want to be involved. Let, let, let's um, let's start up a branch here. So I started up and, um, you know, we, we, we have been progressing slowly. We, we look, we're looking for members. We're looking for police members. Basically, anybody that's been involved with the criminal justice system can join. Uh, we've got a Facebook page, um, and we're connected to the the American branch, and there's also a branch in uh, the UK, and there's a European hub with that as well. So it, it's slowly spreading throughout the world. Police, um, obviously, they're the people that deal with the drug war um, yeah. at, at the front line, so to speak. And um, I just think it's a, a good indication um, of, um, I suppose, a group that have been at the forefront of of fighting the war on drugs for so long uh, are saying this isn't working, we've got to do something else. So where can uh, where can people go to find out more about Leap? You've got the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash... Yep, Leap. Leap. Uh, Leap. Um, they can go to the American uh, Leap uh, website, yep. www.leap.cc, um, and, they, and they can contact Leap at United States. I'm a, I'm a speaker for LEAP, so they can go onto that website and request me to speak and contact me through the American LEAP website. Um, otherwise, I'm happy to leave my details here and people can contact me directly, um, you know, so I'm happy to do that. So from, from your perspective, what, what, what is the, uh, why has Prohibition failed? What, what are the failures of Prohibition? I mean, that's, that's a big question, Nick. That's, that's, that's a big a, question. There's a conference in that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, let's, you know, my first sort of um, awakening was when I looked at the history of drugs and recognised that, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, you know, a few people in the United States said that, well, from a, from a moral perspective, um, we should we should ban drugs because we don't like the fact that people are, are being inebriated and, and you know it may lead to dependence and uh, there was a strong association with um, drug use and certain cultural um, groups in the states and um, so they were really based uh, on this kind of moral sort of a 
opinion of a narrow, a small number of people who thought that, you know, dependency and inebriation was morally dysfunctional, so we should ban them. And then it kind of grew from there that, you know, and during the last century, the United States has been incredibly influential when it comes to drug policy internationally. And um, those views were promulgated through the UN, through their protocols, and, uh, you know, and consequently, um, you know, when you look at the influence of the states in terms of the um, pro prohibition and the war on drugs and the way in the way in which they enforce those laws you know targeting disadvantaged people people with certain ethnic cultural backgrounds incarcerating people pouring billions of dollars trillions of dollars now into you know uh, prison system court system policing um, creating this huge black market for criminal enterprises to thrive and do other criminal things corruption um, causing harm in terms of HIV um, overdose, um, you know, the list kind of goes on, you know, um, and, and here we are saying, well, you know, we really need to ban those drugs because they're so bad for you that, you know, we need to stop you from using them. But in actual fact, it's the policy that, that creates the harm, not the drug. So that's when I started to realise, yeah, what you guys in the States are saying is true. And look, the United States has had a significant um, role to play um, and the neighbours that are saying now, well, We've got to stop this. The guys down in South America, they're the ones that are saying, this ain't working too. We've got to stop this. So there's a Definitely. momentum building internationally from a number of different perspectives. So what, what sort of um, alternatives to the uh, prohibition system would you do you find favourable? There's a few out there, obviously, ranging from uh, decriminalisation to outright legalisation. Do you have any uh, particular preference or opinion? Well, Greg and I were just... Greg and the other Greg and I were just talking about this before, actually. And, and look, um, yeah, look, I think, first of all, we've just got to acknowledge that the system that we have isn't working and we've got to do something else. And I think that's a really important step. Um, so we kind of got to call a truce. Uh, and the other, the other um, aspect, we've got to start putting up some ideas. You know, we've got to start throwing up ideas and, and what, what might work best. If we look at, for, for example, Portugal, they started, you know, decriminalisation process back in the late 90s, early 2000s. They decriminalised all drug use. You know, they've had a lot of positive outcomes from that. You know, the, their um, drug use rates are dropping, you know, HIV's dropped, overdose deaths have dropped, you know, money's going back into education, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of positive things from that. But there's still a black market. So mm. Portugal is still one of the transit routes for illicit drugs into Europe. So, you know, I think, OK, well, how can you do that as well as deal with the black markets? Transform, an organisation in the UK, has come up with some really good modelling around how you might have a... Um, regulated and, and controlled um, market, you know, like a, a, yep. a, a system not not dissimilar to pharmacies, to, mm. you know, um, places where there are designated places which are controlled by government, which, you know, you know what you're getting, you know what you're paying, you know, it's, it's heavily regulated and controlled, but it also um, you know, allows people to make a, con a considered, balanced, an educated choice about what drug it is that they want to use. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know... Because the, the fact is that prohibition doesn't stop people from using drugs. People still use drugs, and they just um, are more negatively affected by uh, the, the policies and the, the lack of information uh, that's out there and, and lack of... Um, uh, well, well <laughs> I mean, the, the black market has mm. all, brings all sorts of problems with it. Um, Greg Kay, I thought I might uh, bring you in yeah, here because um, you've, you've been involved <clears throat> with um, drug law reform over the years. Um, do you want yeah, look, I think it's you know it's awesome to have uh, Leap involved in the conversation because the police themselves are the victims of um, so much dysfunctional drug policy. 
Um, I mean, the, you know, the monopoly drug is alcohol. Mm. Um, now, I speak to police on, um, you, know, you know, reasonably often, and, uh, you know, a number of them have said to me, I love my job, right up until Friday, Saturday night. Why? Well, because that's when the alcohol comes out. That's when the violence starts. Um, you know, um, you know the, the sort of stuff that they've got to put up with is unbelievable. And again, in talking to police, you know, the young ones don't get it because the young ones don't have the experience. But the older ones, you know, you ask them, which would you rather deal with? Would you rather deal with someone who was stoned or would you rather deal with someone who was drunk? I've yet to have someone, except for an inexperienced cop, tell me they'd rather deal with someone who was uh, drunk, overstoned. Um, the police themselves recognise and uh, quite curious. I mean, I've taken LSD four times in the steps of Victorian Parliament House. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, that? Look, Why? Uh, <laughs> probably, look, well, um, I'm a pretty active drug law campaigner, and I have been uh, uh, basically standing up and uh, you know inviting the government to arrest me. Right. Uh, I use. And you, you're sitting here, so obviously they haven't, and they haven't. and and they won't because. Uh, I use them for religious purposes, and um, I'll go into this more on you know subsequent shows. But uh, in Victoria, we do have uh, religious freedom legislation, and basically, cut a long story short, if they took me to court, there's a very good chance they'd lose. Um, but you know, in taking LSD on the steps of Parliament House, you know, go up there, they take my name and details, and say, "What are you doing?" Well, in <laughs> half an hour, I'm going to be taking some LSD. You know, where are they? Half an hour later. Nowhere to be seen. You you said this to the police that that yeah. stand there guarding the steps of Parliament. That's pretty much, and, and they they've come up to me and you know I've had um, some conversations while I was tripping about what it was like because they're quite <laughs> curious. It's so like you know, um, I've also gone into police stations on three occasions, uh, Lillydale on two occasions, and uh, Warburton Police Station, up where I live, on one occasion, and said, "Look, I use LSD. I use magic mushrooms. Um, feel free to arrest me." And you know, again, what did they do? Go out, stop wasting our time. So the thing is that the police themselves recognise that drug use isn't the issue that it's made out to be. Now, let's say, for example, I'd written to all the parliamentarians and everyone and said, I'm going to mug the first little lady that rocks past Parliament House at midday. Yeah, I imagine the police would be down there for that. Yeah, I don't think I'd actually get to Parliament House. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, but if you look at it... Um, if I mug a little old lady, I will probably go to jail for less than if I um, get done for a drug crime. You know, particularly if I, let's say, for example, you know, if I have, um, you know, in Victoria, if I have more than 20 tabs or, you know, um, equivalent, um, each tab being 100 mics, 100 uh, micrograms, mm -hmm. if I have more than 20 tabs, that's considered to be a um, uh, trafficable amount. So... I would actually go to jail for a lot longer for having 20 tabs of LSD. Up to 25 years for trafficking? Look, uh, it depends. Obviously, everything's relative. Yeah. Um, I'd you know, be stunned if I got 25 years. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> the reality is that for mugging a little lady, I'd, you know, I could get, you know, depending on how um, screwed up I and what excuses I had, I could potentially get away with um, you know, a sentence that was less just for being in possession of a drug that is a hell of a lot safer. Than alcohol. So you said you said you uh, use these substances for yes. religious reasons. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, look, I use. Um, there's a class of substances called entheogens that allow people to um, connect and experience connection with the divine. Um, there's a subclass that I call transcendent compounds that are non-addictive, 
non-toxic and psychologically safe in an appropriate dose set and setting. Mm-hmm. In other words, they are the gold standard of uh, alcohol, or sorry, of drug safety. You know, compared to alcohol, which is highly addictive, highly toxic, and very psychologically dangerous. Um, so yeah, I use these, and I have used these for um, you know, nearly ten years as part of my uh, spiritual tradition. I'm a mystic. Uh, if people want to, you know, read about the sort of things that I get up to and, the, you know, some of the ideas that I have, by all means, look at my website, uh, kasarik.com. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm very much at the forefront. You know, the irony is that I'm actually an accidental drug law campaigner because I went public a number of years ago because I didn't want to lie about things anymore. By going public, what, what were you doing at the time? How did you...? I went public on my website. Right. Um, I, that was before I'd actually started any of the other stuff. And very quickly, I found myself unemployable, and uh, you know, so I was kind of backed into a corner. What? And how? How were you um, unemployable because of that? I'm a counsellor. Right. I'm a personal counsellor and a careers counsellor, and um, you know, it turns out that people don't want a druggie, as you know, they think of me as in that kind of a role. You know, uh, you know, bad influence and not saying the right things. So if I was to, um, if I was to say sorry. And pretend that I was really, really, you know, bad for taking drugs. I'd get jobs, but until then, no. Mm. Greg, Greg, yeah, look, um, you brought up a very good point, Greg. Um, that you know, when when we look at the outcomes from the war on drugs and prohibition, stigma and discrimination is a is a significant, significant issue, and and it's hard to believe that there are, you know, people in the community who actually think that stigma and discrimination is a good thing. That that you know, there are people out there who think it's right to discriminate mm. against you, Greg, because that teaches other people how bad drugs are. Oh. So, you know, I, I just find, and when it comes to injecting drug users, I've worked a lot in the injecting drug use field, both locally and internationally, and and the, um, the way in which people who inject drugs are viewed, merely because they inject drugs, and the inability to access clean needles and syringes, um, you know, to prevent HIV and hepatitis transmission, you know... Um, I hear, I hear people who say, oh, just let them share, you know, who cares if they die, you know, that will teach others not to do it. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I think we really need to sort of, um, you know, take a, I guess, a bit of a, a look at ourselves, you know, and say, hang on, you know, do we really want to say these things about people who are just, you know, using a drug but in a different way than someone else? Mm. Um, Ash, you wanted to add something? Yeah, well, I mean, that's also kind of the reason that I'm here. It's really hard to get movement on a difficult policy area if you can't even have an honest conversation about it. And this particular area of policy is somewhere where we can't have an honest conversation. A lot of people use drugs without a problem. In fact, the majority of people that use recreational drugs don't have a significant problem. But we never hear from them because mm. it's forbidden for those people to talk. And that's what this show is, is here for. And um, we do, uh, do want to continue the conversation with you. Uh, the website is encycadelia.org. You can find that on the 3CR website if you can't spell that. So head to 3cr.org.au and you can find some more information about what we do. Get in contact with us. Tell us your stories. We want to hear your stories. Um, and we'll be back on uh, Sunday from 2 p.m. Um, and you can also uh, listen to the stream um, at a later point as well. Um, thanks, guys, for chatting me. To, uh, Thank you chatting with me today. Um, uh, Thank up, you. Up next, I believe, is uh, Queering the Air. Um, but I, 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 I will, I will double check that. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast. That was in Psychedelia. 
For more, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page.